Hi there, Tyler Buckingham here, and I want to thank you for supporting Coastal News Today and the American Shoreline Podcast Network. As part of our effort to improve our content and expand our audience, we'd love it if you could take 10 minutes and let us know more about you and how we can bring the best possible coastal content to you in the future. I promise it's quick and easy. Just go to CoastalNewsToday.com to find the survey. Thank you so much. Welcome to the October issue of the Waterlog Podcast. My name is Dan Janolfi. And I'm Howard Marlowe. Thanks very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today for hosting us. Today we'll be talking about mostly two things, uh, the public and the private sector. Uh, and this issue will also cover some upcoming legislation in Congress and give you an update on the second Financing Coastal Resilience Conference, which is a follow-up to the first Coastal uh, Financing Coastal Resilience Conference that we held in January of last year. As always with Waterlog, you'll also get a little more than you bargained for. Let's get started. Amen to that. Where else can you find someplace uh, where you can go and get more than you bargained for? It's pretty good. So, Howard, Trump has coronavirus. We all know this by now. Uh, but quite frankly, I'd like to sideline all of the political talk today uh, mm-hmm. and focus solely on two things, the public sector and the private sector and how they relate to coastal resilience. Now, public sector, I mean Corps of Engineers, FEMA, federal government, and private sector, I mean any, any investor, insurance industry, but mostly talking about uh, you know Wall Street type investors. Mm-hmm. So I want to start by letting our listeners know, if they're not already aware, that the can has been kicked on flood insurance once again. A big punt this time, all the way until September 30th, 2021, so a year from now. I think we just stopped counting the number of times it's been kicked. Well, I stopped counting. I had to update Waterlog, and because yeah. we, we have a time. Yeah, you have the counter, there. yeah. So. But, I mean, it, it, it must be over two dozen times that they've kicked the can down. Too many. Yeah. I mean, the, and this is a long kick. Yeah. I also want to remind our, ris- our listeners that of the nation's roughly $7.5 billion core budget, that only a measly $150 million gets allocated to our nation's coasts, where roughly 50% of the population lives. Now, you know, we, we know this. We have, ra- we have railroads running along eroding bluffs in California, roadways, rush- roadways washing away in North Carolina, houses falling into the ocean in the Northeast, as well as the Great Lakes. Portions of Miami, New Jersey are facing triple-digit sunny-day flooding events annually in the next 10 to 20 years, and we have the first set of 50-year beach nourishment projects facing reauthorization, which have just about a zero chance of making a one-to-one or unity on their benefit-cost ratio. That's uh, kind of a nasty picture there, but uh, but an accurate one. Well, you know, let, let me keep going here before okay. we don't get too scared. Okay. Uh, finally, I just want to remind our listeners that zero dollars were also requested for coastal resilience in the administration's FY21 budget proposal. So, okay, these, none of this looks good. Before we get scared and everyone's running for the door, the federal government actually does have a swath of programs and authorities that can be very useful to local, uh, local governments. Many of these programs offer exactly the type of planning expertise that local governments are looking for from the private sector at a steep discount, I mean, up to 50%, depending on what program is used. And finally, I think what's most important here is, you know, once, once a municipality or a group of municipalities have decided what it is that they want to construct using the engineering expertise that's available from the federal government, there's a market that's actually available to finance those projects. And this is going on right now in Ohio. So the reason I brought all this up is it leads us into uh, an update that we have from, from the first Financing Coastal Resilience Conference that we put on in January of last year um, in coordination with the Coastal States Organization, Penn Water mm-hmm. Center, 
uh, as well as our sponsors and our participants, which include um, American Shore and Beach Preservation Association, Moody's Investor Service, Morgan Stanley, um, New Jersey Coastal Coalition, the Water Institute of the Gulf, Army Corps of Engineers, um, Ohio Department of Natural Resources, New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection. I mean, this was the, the purpose of this, of this event was to bring together engineers, academia, government expertise, the private sector, insurance, and have decision makers from local governments come in and explain what their challenges are so that the private sector can offer solutions. And that's exactly what happens, uh, what happened. And I'm not going to go into all the background of, of, you know, I think we've talked a lot about the background of why Coastal Strategies was formed and why we put on the conference mm -hmm. and, and sort of the, you know, the, the current environment or in, in coastal resilience and why we're at this point where we need private investment. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important to tie together some of the things you've just talked about, Dan, because, yes, we get $150 million in measly, you know, measly money. Um, and uh, so, in essence, and when you look at that, Congressional Research Service also put out a report recently that said basically in um, pre-disaster mitigation grants, including the BRIC program, which really hasn't gotten funded yet, although it's out there, offering grants and FEMA hasn't made decisions about how much money it's going to uh, offer uh, for those grants. But when you look at it, still for post-disaster mitigation grants, I'm not talking about disaster aid, you can get far more money uh, that way than you can for pre-disaster. So what I'm saying is the federal government is not the first place to look to solve all your problems. And then the next point is that you've pointed out is you can ask the federal government for things that help you get into the kinds of solutions that you want to have. So don't look to Uncle Sam to come in right now. I don't see it happening for the next 10 years easily. We're having enough trouble with trying to figure out some of what we talk about, I guess, a little bit later in this broadcast about, uh, you know, a COVID kind of supplemental. We're having enough trouble agreeing about spending money for that. And here we are dealing with a constant um, disaster that is happening. It's not yet the kind of disaster that we call a national disaster, but it ought to be uh, sea level rise. So I think it's important to realize what Coastal Strategies has done is say, okay, local communities, what kinds of solutions do you want to implement? And let's then try to find the money to first plan where the federal government may be able to be useful in planning money. And second of all, when you have to implement, where a lot of local governments just totally throw up their hands, put the studies on the shelf and say, I'll, I'll think about it later. Say, no, okay, there's private sector money that may be a good match for your, pro for your program, and that's what we've been involved in. Well, the, both the core and FEMA have provided you know hundreds of communities with studies, plans, recommendations, all sorts of things. All, but yes. there is rarely ever funds available mm -hmm. at the local level for implementation, and that's exactly why you know coastal strategy was formed. You know, even uh, speaking to the folks in Louisiana, too huge. I forget the term that was used. It wasn't huge. It was something that referred to them as kind of the biggest projects that have yet happened in coastal Louisiana, planned by the core not funded by the Corps, funded by the... Uh, BP? Yes. Okay. By BP. The people, oil spill. People trust the Corps. Yeah. So you can plan. The Corps does good planning work. When it comes down to trying to fund, there's, it's kind of hard out of that $150 million to find kinds of billion-dollar solutions right. nationwide that we need. 
but a couple of communities would say, well, you know, give me half of that 150 million, you know, and we'll take it. Well, you don't need that necessarily. So what I'm saying is that uh, that's what Coastal Strategies in, is involved with. And so two of the direct outcomes from, from the meeting that we had in Philadelphia uh, last January was uh, the New Jersey Coastal Coalition is in its final stages of securing a 50-50 cost share um, for a study that will be, will be conducted by the Corps of Engineers uh, in partnership with the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection that will identify low-lying areas prone to tidal flooding in 13 municipalities across New Jersey and provide mitigation solutions in those areas. And this study will effectively demonstrate exactly what we just talked about is the opportunity for the Corps of Engineers to provide the technical and comprehensive planning resources that local governments need, and that can finally be implemented and delivered through the private sector. Absolutely. Let those folks know uh, where their flooding areas, where their vulnerable flooding areas are, and the kinds of things that they can do about it, and then we go off to the private sector right. to implement the solutions. And as our nation looks towards these multi-billion dollar public-private partnerships, that's not really what's necessary. No. I mean, I mean that, that's fantastic, but this is... I mean, uh, you, you could argue that it is or is not a public-private partnership. I would argue that it is. Yeah, it is. And uh, this is, I really think, the future of coastal resilience. Because as, as we've seen with all these massive projects in New York and Texas where they're asking for $10, 20 $35 million for implementation, it's simply not going to happen. No, not unless you have an oil spill or some kind of huge disaster like that. And, and there's no sense of waiting for that <clears throat> and, and wanting that because of what it does to disrupt all of the, uh, the, you know, New Orleans and the area, areas surrounding that have never gotten back to normal. Never. A lot of places left, a lot of businesses left, a lot of people left, and a lot of resources left. You can't replace that. You can try to protect that and plan for it in pre-disaster mitigation, pre-planning, resilience. Uh, and, and I think more folks ought to realize that there, so far in terms of private money investment, so far where you see it is in toll roads and things like that. You didn't, and you see it also in uh, what they call water infrastructure, drinking water and clean water. Those are very good things to get private investment in. So far, nothing in what local communities would call their resilience and adaptation to see the rise climate change. Right. Not one dollar yet. Is it... Uh I mean, you have to, there's a lot of outside-the-box thinking in terms of identifying, you know, a revenue stream. Yeah. If it's going to come from the properties, that can be, you know, fairly, I don't want to use the term obvious, but there are much more, much clearer alternatives for revenue streams. But when you look outside of that, it can be... Well, that's what we've done in, in, in Ohio, what we're planning to do in a couple of other areas, uh, of looking at those out-of-the-box things. And they're real. They're absolutely specific things that you can look at right now and say they're coming. Um, so I think it's something that uh, we have more information on that people want to uh, yeah, and that's, contact us. and that's the second thing that, uh, the second outcome from the meeting that I was just going to get into, uh, which is that Coastal Strategies, Coastal Strategies has been working with uh, both Morgan Stanley and the office, uh, Ohio Office of Coastal Management to facilitate uh, development of what, what is called uh, special improvement districts. Um, and that essentially allows, um, actually let me take a step back. Uh, the state of Ohio enacted State Bill 51, which allows the formation of special improvement districts. Not all states have this legislation available. And it essentially creates a 501c3 nonprofit with a board structure and voting rights. Um, and essentially it places a tax lien tied to the property over a 30 year period. And 
properties within the special improvement district will uh, revenues will be collected from those properties within the special improvement district and will use, be used to pay back the principal provided by the investor over a 30 year period. And one of the exciting things we're seeing here in Ohio is a over 95% local participation rate, which is something we do not see on the East Coast. No, it's going to be a harder, Dunes harder and thing. easements and all, mm -hmm. sorts, all sorts of things like that. And, you know, I'm sure, I know that the, you know, the lakefront views are just as nice as the oceanfront mm -hmm. views, but for whatever reason, homeowners are, you know, far more eager to yeah. offer, in, in many cases, even public access. Yeah. Uh, in exchange for protection. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting where you may have folks in a community I won't mention in uh, in sort of southern New Jersey where they fight over the issue of not wanting to have sand because they don't want it to block their view. They want to provide the easements for the public and that kind of thing. And, you know, they, they probably want amphibious homes built, but they really haven't gotten to that point yet because they haven't realized the reality. So. What we're dealing with in the Great Lakes is people who actually are willing to work together and collaborate. And I think we're going to find that also on the East Coast more and more, as people realize what their options are. You either provide, you know, it doesn't have to be dues and it doesn't have to be public access, but there can be a variety of things that you can do in collaboration with your neighbors and neighboring towns so that not everybody's left on their own. Well, you know, it's interesting, you know, on the East Coast, you know, think about Sandy or any storm that comes by, you have these massive supplemental bills. When was the last time the Great Lakes got a supplemental bill? Uh, I mean, there is a sense of urgency and desperation yeah. here because nothing's coming. I mean, there's a Great Lakes Coastal Resilience Study that's gone nowhere. Yeah. Uh, plenty of other studies that really have not done much. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. they're they're facing, you know, the, the greatest erosion rates that have been seen in the past century, if, if, if not more. Yeah, it's going to so, increase, uh, unfortunately. They, but they understand that. Well, this level of desperation is only going to appear on the east, on all, all of our ocean-facing coasts, yeah. eventually. It's, it's got to happen. And, you know, the Great Lakes, if you think of a lake, they're not lakes, they're oceans. Uh, and in, in terms of at least the size. And the dynamics may be a little bit different, but on the other hand, the erosion and flooding, same thing that we're dealing with in every other coast of the United States, East, Gulf, West Coast, also Great Lakes. And, and you know, looking ahead 20, 30 years from now, we're going to have projects protecting, you know, these developments. And what I think investors are coming on to now is these are multi-hundred million dollar projects. Right. And, and if they're, I mean, even if they're 50 to 100 million, they're protecting hundreds of millions of, of, of dollars of property value and coastal assets. I mean, this goes beyond, if you look towards coastal cities, it goes beyond just property uh, property owners. I mean, you've got assets, you've got oh, a whole lot more. You, ha you have... You have the roads, you have the public utilities, and all of the money that they generate in various ways of business. So, you know, various kinds of businesses that uh, those utilities and roads support, plus the uh, lifestyle that they support of a community as a whole, not just the people who live near the coast, but the entire community. So, yes, there's a huge investment involved. And before those property values start decreasing, Report that I think we'll get into maybe in an, in our next broadcast on the Moody, that Moody's has put out. Mm -hmm. Before they start decreasing, do something now. Start now because it's going to take a few years. And, and just go on Google and search Moody's or First Street Foundation and Sea Level Rise, and, and you'll see all the things that we're we're about to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and then we, we, quite frankly, quite frankly, what we've already talked about is you know, and uh, where was it? I was looking yesterday. Cape May, New Jersey, is one of the top ten uh, low-lying areas that are repetitive. Uh, 
Repetitive Repetitive loss. Repetitive loss properties, uh, Cape May, New Jersey. Yeah. And New Jersey also is in the top 10 for, uh, this is kind of hard to explain, but the the properties are essentially not appreciating at the rate they're supposed to be. So it's not necessarily a decrease, but you say, hey, look, my my property is supposed to be worth a million bucks and it's only worth 700. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's, if you think you add up all those houses for the local government, those property, ta- those property taxes, that's going to be a huge cut to your budget. You, know, you mentioned Cape May. Uh, they also had Suffolk County in New York, which is the easternmost county, and then Nassau County in New York, which is the western county of Long Island. So those two counties are there. Passaic, New Jersey, uh, obviously New Orleans and the areas around that, and Harris County and, and uh, Galveston County. They're all in the top ten of repetitive loss properties, uh, which, um, you know, the, uh, was the Natural Resources Defense Council, uh, Natural Re- yes, Natural Resources Defense Council, which put out a report on that recently. Mm-hmm. Google that, because these are not, this is not a report that you get from FEMA. Nobody knows, are you buying in a repetitive loss area? Is my property a repetitive loss property that I'm buying? There's no disclosure mm-hmm. requirement for that. So you may have one, folks, already. I, mean, I, just, I, I just, well, two things, actually. First, um, I, I want to put out there for our listeners, if you are interested in participating in, in the second uh, Finance and Coastal Resilience Conference, I know we've kind of taken a few different tangents here. It's been a good conversation. Please shoot me a note. Um, it is invite only, but we do have a couple spaces available. Uh, the second point I want to make is just, you mentioned FEMA and, and repetitive loss properties. There's distrust in government. Yeah, you know, I, I want to yeah. st- I want to stay away from Trump and, and COVID and all and all that. But I do want to say one thing is that you know, for example, yesterday when they're releasing him, they all, all the positive information he's happy to get out. Any negative information, you know, they want to cover up. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened with you know we're seeing this FEMA report where there are houses that were sold that are repetitive lost property. Yeah. There's tons of information out there that shows that. Property owners bought houses that were extremely risky, and that risk was not disclosed properly. Absolutely. One of the things which we have to recognize in this country is that just with COVID, there is a level of risk which we can accept as individuals and as communities, but we really have to know the facts before we can decide whether we're going to accept it. And so if you're a homeowner, you're buying property, you need to know what the history of that property is. You have an inspection done. You have all those things done. They tell you about what's happening now. You need to know about what's happened in the past. And if that property, even though it doesn't you know, look like it, to you as a person who comes in, so, oh, it looks like a great piece of property. You need to know whether, you know, when storms come, is it a repetitive lost property? How else can you prepare to decide how you're going to, if you want to buy it, nevertheless, that's fine. But you have to know that you may have to do something to elevate it or somehow prepare for the risk. Right. So, end, end of discussion. But if you want to know more about that, as Dan said, please get in touch with us. And if you're interested in that uh, next conference, uh, yes, just a couple of spots because it's, uh, it's a New England conference. Mm-hmm. And we're only going to open up to a couple of folks uh, outside of New England. Yeah, it's going to be focused on regional sediment management and uh, stormwater. Right. Yeah. Uh, so moving moving away from that, I think there's you know many states are eager to learn a lot more about financial markets and what the private sector can offer. Um, and I hope that conversation continues. So let's get into some other uh, things directly related to the federal government. Uh, NEPA. There was a mention in the Federal Register. Can you go into that a little more? Because I think our, our readers are going to be interested. Yeah, this is it, has, it hasn't been updated since 1980. 1978. 
uh, yeah. you know, the guidelines. Yeah. So back in 2017, 217, back in 2017, the administration put out uh, its first indication that it wanted to take a comprehensive look at what was going on with NEPA. And uh, they started coming out with things. They put out a notice of proposed rulemaking. The final rules are out as of September 14th. Look in your Federal Register, you'll find them. And it's about 40 or 50 pages out of the Federal Register. But essentially what they do uh, is they provide exceptions for high-priority projects, exceptions from the NEPA process. They speed up the process for certain types of projects because they, uh, the administration is, uh, this administration has said it just takes too long to go through a NEPA. We have some people listening here who will agree with that. It's not just a political thing. How long does NEPA typically take? Well, they say, you know, you can take seven, eight, or more years to go through, a, you know, a NEPA approval for a smaller medium-sized project. That's a long time. Now, whether those figures are accurate or not, that's what a claim was by the administration. It is a long time. And, and is that in addition to the course three by three by three process? It, no, it would be going, it could be in addition. Let's look at it. it. It depends when the NEPA review is coming. So yeah, it could be a heck of a long time when you're looking at trying to get a, a project done. So they've come up with things which make it go faster and smoother and all the rest of those things. Uh, they improve the process for preparing efficient and timely environment, environmental reviews. Again, speed up whatever they can do to uh, uh, you know, speed up the process, use an appropriate use of mitigation and monitoring and appropriate use of mitigated findings of no significant impact. So if there is no significant impact that is found by NEPA, then you can move a project through quicker. So they've tried to make it easier to find uh, a no significant impact. A lot of things like that, folks, look into it. In, in the register, and uh, they, you will find them listing uh, on the September 14th thing, they list the, uh, you know, a simple list of things that they, that they include in this comprehensive review. And the comprehensive review itself, I have buried in my papers somewhere here. Uh, you know, bottom line, pardon me for shuffling papers, yeah, it comes out of the bottom of the pile. Uh, they, back in July 16th, they really uh, alerted everybody as to what they were going to uh, do. And so take a look at the 40 or 50 pages that come out for more than 100. There's about 100 pages there. Yeah, and I think it's important because I think some people that are listening will like that because they are trying to do some projects which have environmental, uh, potential environmental impacts, but they get into this long process. Right. I think uh, the hardest issue for us to confront in the environmental sense is a balancing of human life and human activity and environmental resources. It is not a, there's no easy answer to that. The administration may have provided some easier answers than folks are willing to, uh, in our listening audience, are willing to accept, but maybe some people say, hooray, hooray, we can move things along quicker because going through the regulatory process, Corps of Engineers is involved with clean water for example, together with EPA. Man, that can be some kind of long process where once you give government power to regulate, and, and I'm a person who believes in the, in the importance of strong government. So here, me saying, once you give regulators the power to regulate, they become fiefdoms all to themselves. And you really have difficulty. We've had clients over the years where we're just trying to get some little, 
extension of time for doing something where we were given a window environmentally and we couldn't do it so we had to really use all the political power that was possibly available just to get fish and wildlife to say okay two more weeks go for two more weeks it'll be okay or a month more and I think the regulations trying to go in that direction are that's a good part of what they're trying to do some of the other things I think uh, maybe cutting corners which have negative consequences to the environment. I think what, what anyone's looking for is flexibility, right? yeah. but not overstepping or not, yeah. not cutting corners or, or uh, you know, taking advantage of, of the program in any way. But Environmental resources are critical to our health, critical to our economy, uh, critical to our future, however you want to put it. And the bottom line is that uh, we need to protect them. There are things that are being proposed that uh, can be implemented without uh, doing a scorched earth approach. So I think that's, you know, the end of that discussion. You have to look in. I'd be anxious to have our listeners, uh, you know, give us comments on what they think about the administration's proposal um, because I'm sure that, uh, you know, there are different points of view out there. Let us know. You can always let us know anything uh, uh, good or bad or indifferent. Uh, Howard if you have at, questions. Yeah, sure, Howard sure. at waterlog.net, Dan at waterlog.net. Uh, we'll be happy to like to hear from you. All right, so last thing on today's podcast, uh, let, let's cover bills in Congress. And actually, before we get to that, let's talk about any potential stimulus. Yeah, there's a potential stimulus. Now, one of the great crimes, I think, that has gone on that we're going to be paying for for a, a period of time is a lack of leadership. And this is, goes Democrats and Republicans. There are some Democrats, together with apparently uh, Mr. Trump, who say he wants to get a stimulus now, now and bigger, he said. And Democrats want to do something now in the House and bigger. But that's not always so true. Because do they want to do it now before Election Day and therefore give Republican members, oh, look what we accomplished and, you know, we need to get reelected. And then you have Republican members who are saying, oh, it's too much. Putting another uh, trillion dollars in is too much. Ridiculous, folks. I'm sorry. Forget the politics of it. There are people who are unemployed. There are businesses that are going down the tube, small businesses particularly, restaurants also, all of the hospitality All sectors. of our good lunch spots are gone. They're gone. <laughs> I shouldn't be laughing. I know, they're on. It, it, it's, it's something where you have, there were a lot of small business people here who were able to provide lunch services and the like who are out, who are out of business. I mean, this, it, uh, literally, I mean, for our, for our listeners, <laughs> our Two of our favorite spots are gone. Yeah. And an entire food court's been wiped out. Oh, yeah. I mean... And, and, and my daughter's unemployed and needs assistance. She's a mortgage payer trying to figure out how to make, it, make ends meet. Please, to the leadership, yes, they're having different proposals. And we could say they're going to do this or going to do that. But the fact of the matter is that somebody told me years ago that Washington is uh, uh, in the midst of gonorrhea. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. We're always gonna do this and we're gonna do that. Here, there is no way that any leadership, Republican or Democrat, would have let this happen, that there would not have been back in, what, June, July, a second uh, coronavirus stimulus out there already. The Fed, 
The Federal Reserve has said what is needed now is exactly that. They have done as much. They are at zero interest. They are doing everything they possibly can do. They need the government to use fiscal policy to keep us from being stagnating for the next five, six years in our economy, maybe longer. So, you know, we can talk about what's going on, the details. Republicans offering this to local governments, the Democrats offering that. But I think, Dan, you know, the answer is we don't know what is going to happen in this case, and that there is a possibility of bridging the gap. The gap is not that big, but there's right now not the will to bridge that gap. And that's the way I suggest it that we handle it rather than saying, well, the Republicans are proposing this and the Democrats that, is bridgeable. It's close enough to be bridgeable if there was a will to bridge it. I think it sounds to me like there is going to be more checks distributed. I think yeah. There's too many people unemployed. Yeah, uh, there certainly seems to be a bipartisan agreement that there ought to be you know more stimulus checks coming out. Maybe as much as last time, it could be the same, but... You might limit it. Uh, you, state and local government aid, here, we've been pretty clear before, the money to local governments is needed in direct assistance to local governments, not coming through states. Reasons for that are very simple. They get involved in state politics. Once you let the state legislature decide who gets in the local communities, then you're enmeshed in the state legislature. So no matter what dollar figure is there, it needs to get to local governments. Um, unemployment insurance, my God, the, the, the additional unemployment insurance needs to be extended. What the Democrats are saying, 600 a week, the Republicans 400 a week. You split the difference, come on. Not so hard to do, really. It, you know, those kinds of numbers are, are, are really easy to deal with. You know, other kinds of things that are there to, to deal with uh, are all, all dealable. Uh, education funding, simple. You know, between 150 million, a billion Republicans, 225 that separates it by 75 you know, billion dollars, you cut that. <laughs> Just cut it in half. Just do it. They're all willing to do something. I mean, they made, they made some agreements, uh, food assistance. Yes. You got, you got COVID testing assistance they've agreed on, food assistance they've agreed on. It's almost just a matter of when. I mean, they, they always come to an agreement at some point. You know, yes, they will have to. So They will have to. This is not something that is going to pass. Uh, COVID is with us for several more months. Perhaps another year we'll be talking still about it. V vaccine or no vaccine. There are going to be people who cannot simply turn around on the dime, go back to work, and say, I've been vaccinated, now I'm ready to go back to work. That's not going to happen that well, way. Well, if you're a local business, small restaurant, and you've completely left your shop, even taken down your, your, you know, your sign, those are steps you take to open a business and get a business running. I mean, all, all the steps you have to take as a, as a first-time business. Yeah. That stuff takes time and money, and you lose all that. You've lost your, you lost your employees to unemployment insurance and hopefully to another job that they find somewhere. You, so if you have trusted employees, you are not going to get them back. You have to keep these people going. And, and the, again, the numbers are not that far apart that they can't be bridged and can't be bridged before Election Day, folks, before would take something that somebody would say is half a loaf and get it into people's hands now so that they can actually make use of that half a loaf. And I think we're at that position right now where that can be done. Let's finish off with bills in Congress. Well, there's been a lot of activity uh, going on in Congress. 
several bills uh, have passed either the House or the Senate. Now, are they going to pass the House and the Senate? A lot of things happen in the last days of Congress. Um, but uh, as I pull up the sheet of paper, pardon me for the paper background and the noise, folks, um, you have uh, Sea Grant program being reauthorized and expanded, uh, S940. We have, uh, a lot of these are Senate bills, which is kind of interesting. Senate bills are passing. Uh, S1065, it would integrate data that it comes from different federal agencies that it relates to coastal data so that we can try to be, uh, you know, try to combine our information, be more informed with existing data. Uh, Congress, as I always hate to say back in the day, but back in 1996, Congress passed the Coastal Data Bank and it was designed to try to encourage that, never fund it. This bill would try to do the same kind of thing. Uh, S. 1982 would provide uh, some kinds of, oh, it, it dealt with the marine debris. Serious problem, the kind of plastic and all the other things. You and I wear plastic socks, made, socks made from, made from plastic. We have a serious problem, though, about marine debris, a whole marine debris degree program, S. 1982. And the Floods Act is uh, passed out of uh, uh, the Senate uh, Commerce Committee, S. 4462. So those are among the bills, and we'll be posting by uh, probably next week an updated list of uh, problems on the uh, uh, bills on our, um, uh, our waterlog website. Yeah, we have a, a federal bill tracker, uh, which we update maybe every, every month or two months, depending on the, the level of activity. So we're getting ready to do that we again, do. and we'll be sure to include that in whatever uh, the, the nearest waterlog update is that goes out. Absolutely, and, and uh, take a look at it because it's easy to look at and you can just look at what, what the name of the bill is, what its status is, and what it does, all in one easy place on waterlog.net. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. That's all we've got for you today. Uh, look forward to talking to you in November. Yeah, is it going to be post-election or not that we're going to be talking? We'll have to take a look at that. If it's post-election, folks, it'll be cataclysmic. Of course, we don't know what... We'll do this live. Yeah, we'll do it, we, yeah election, <laughs> election Eve night, except for the fact that nobody knows what post-election, when it's going to be finally decided. So we'll talk to you then, whenever then is. All right, everyone. Thanks very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News today. Until next time, take care. Bye-bye.